alcohol. Alcohol, I'm a cat and I need water. (laughs) (laughs) Going to amplify all of this audio. Is it not already amplified? Save it. Nope. I'm going to save it for posterity. You could save it without amplifying it. But I'm going to amplify it. Why? Because I want to. Because I like the idea... Amplify? Okay. Sounded like you said amplify before. Amplify? And I wanted to make fun of you. I want it to be as ample as possible. (laughs) Why does everyone want my audio to be ample? (laughs) My favorite kind of audio is ample audio. (laughs) Personally, I like the sort of tall and slender audio. See, I like my audio to be wayfish. <laughs> and buxom. Wayfish and buxom, huh? Yes. You like your audio with back problems. <laughs> Hello, gentle listener. Welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. This is a book podcast. If you don't know that by now, I'm sorry. Uh, we're talking about books. We don't talk about scotch, except at the end. So you gotta and wait right until now. the end. Right now we're but mentioning right it, now. but not actually talking about it. What is the what is the actual distinction between those? You know. Do I? You do. I'm not trying to trap you. We haven't established the rules yet. Yeah, I know. I'm but genuinely you know. answered answered in your question. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you are. So with that said, <laughs> I'm your host Michael Lilienthal, and this oddball is my guest Ethan Bartlett. I'm your guest Ethan Bartlett, not you. Michael's. I'm yours, gentle listener. But you're also mine. Nope. I've renounced you. Ever since, You like, can go sleep out in the parking lot. Two then. episodes ago, you said, Ethan, I'm not interested in a Bartlett. Or <laughs> and I've been mad at you ever since. That's fair. I've been laying this trap for you, which I'm now springing cleverly. A trap that gets you to sleep outside? I'm not. That's not... Yeah, it is. Never mind. Your wife can sleep in here. Can that's I... fine. Isn't fine, but you'll sleep out on the park bench. There's a picnic table out there. I'd do that. Yeah, there there are picnic tables out there you can sleep on. Sure, that's fine. Cool. All right. Now that we've resolved that, we're drinking this scotch called Polly's Casks Double Barrel Aged Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey from Alexander Murray and Company, also from Tillabardine Distillery, also from Firestone Walker Brewing Company. How can it be from all three at once? We'll read the box. Give me a break. We'll do that in no. a bit. Just no breaks. down. No breaks, no Kit Kats for you. <laughs> but please break me off a piece of that. I literally just said no before you asked, so I don't know what you want from me now. I want you to change your mind. Well, I can't, because once my mind is made up, it is written up yonder that it shall not change. So wait, wait, is what you're saying that the great scroll on which everything is written is your mind? My mind is part of the great scroll on which everything is written. But once it's written in my mind, it is part of the great scroll, and then I can't change it. Okay. All right. All right. We'll talk about that. But first, let's get your wife in here. Hi, wife. Wait, I think I did that last time. <laughs> edit, edit that back out. Uh, dear wife, please come in here. <laughs> Karen, what are the rules? Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. 
Rule 2. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, dear wife. Uh, Also, the additional rule that the wives are allowed a glass of the scotch before it is all done. And by wives, we mean, mean Sarah. Exactly. That's true. So, do you need more scotch in your glass? I think I do. Get some more scotch in your glass. I'll get some more scotch in my glass. Get some more scotch in your mom's glass. See, wow! The rules haven't taken effect. Oh, because we didn't full clank. advantage of that. We didn't clank. So yeah. First paragraph. <laughs> Vampires. Schlank. Lachaim. <laughs> So yes, as you know from looking at the title of this episode, and also listening to the last episode, we are talking about Denis Diderot by Jacques the Fataliste. Run through that one more time. <laughs> I said what I meant and I know what I said. Okay. Um, yeah, this book uh, that is stupid and dumb is delightful. Um, yep. So I wanted to talk about, we, we talked about a lot. In the last episode. We did. None of it well, but a okay. bunch of it a lot. Yeah, we, we did. We did. Um, we did those things. Um, I want to talk about this time around a little bit about the narrator of this novel. Okay. Who addresses the reader frequently um, and is dumb. Yeah. I'm looking at uh, the, the one occasion I found is on page 70 in my copy. I don't have chapters, so good luck. Um, Lottie frickin' da. Lottie frickin' Wait, da. Let me see what the end of your page count is. The end of my page count? Yeah. It's like... Trying to do math here. Like 250-ish. Doing math? Yeah, 254. What, what page are you on? 70. Okay. My page numbers, because that matters, start on 21. Off. Oh, uh if they started on one, our pages actually matched up pretty well. Mm. But now I have no idea where you no are. No idea. Go on. Uh, for the record, your pages have been historically about three or four ahead of mine from okay. when I found them. Okay. So. Good to know. Page 70 in mine, uh, the narrator uh, inserts himself and says, You can see, uh. reader. You can see, reader, how obliging I am. I want... 
Okay, hold on. <laughs> I'm going to finish this, this paragraph before I go back to the first sentence of this paragraph. If I had a mind to do it, I could whip on the horses pulling the black-draped carriage. Oh, I yeah. could assemble together at the door of the nearest cottage Jacques, his master, the excise men, or the mountain constabulary, and the rest of the cortege. I could interrupt the story of Jacques' captain and make you as impatient as I wanted to. But to do all that, I would have to lie. And I don't like lies. Unless they are necessary and useful. The fact is that Jacques and his master saw no more of the draped carriage, and that Jacques, although he was still very worried about his horse's behavior, continued his story. All right, so this whole paragraph, which is just an insertion by the narrator addressing the reader, which has been happening throughout the book so far, and continues all the way to the end. The narrator is objecting once again, and he does this occasionally too and very specifically calls out the fact that if I were writing a novel, I would do this, right. but I'm not going to because I'm not writing a novel. Um, so that's the sort of thing he's doing here, saying that the narrator is essentially claiming to have free will. Right. In opposition to Jacques, who is claiming the fatalism sort of thing. Right. And... Despite having free will, the narrator, who is claiming to have said free will, is also claiming to be bound by some concept of truth or of yes. telling this story in the genre of history right. in some sense or right. other. So, that's... Okay, first of all, that's fascinating. Right. Just the idea that the narrator himself is outside of all of this whole discussion. Also, there's hedging in this paragraph. Right. That I don't like lies unless there's an unless. So lies are sometimes okay. Right. Therefore, anything he says could be a lie if it's necessary or useful or if there's something else that he lied about that could also excuse a lie. Right. Because he could be lying in this sentence. Right. Anyway, so, but he says, I'm obliging. How obliging I am. You see, reader, how obliging I am. Right. He's being nice to us. Right. There's this, what's fascinating about this novel that I wasn't expecting to encounter is dialogue between author and reader. Right. Or narrator and reader. Like, he's writing you, the reader, into this novel. Yeah. And having you say things. Yeah. Which is a technique, once again, that he borrows from Tristram Shandy. Yes. Um, in which I actually reread Tristram Shandy over the course of the last year, partly as a result of having read Jacques uh, mm. the first time and just needing to go back and make sure that he, that uh, Diderot did in fact plagiarize as much of Tristram Shandy as I uh, right. thought he did. Um, which I'm using plagiarize in a fairly cavalier definition. Kind of a here. loose sense. Um, partly because I think even in a modern setting, what Diderot has done would be much more like a very close um, quoting or reference to Tristram Shandy. And at the time, in the 18th century, what constituted plagiarism was a much more broadly defined Different. thing. Yeah. Um, in fact, Tristram Shandy itself copies from several, like, history books and textbooks of the time. Right. Just sort of wholesale, and it, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't do anything like your modern MLA or APA attribution. Um, right, no citations, so to speak. 
Right. And partly that was because perhaps the publishing world was somewhat smaller and it was sort of assumed that an intelligent reader would understand or right. be able to understand what uh, that this was a quote and that this was someone else's work. Partly it was just because they could. Um, so, but that said, uh, if you if you wanted to read the great sort of genre-changing works in the history of the novel, you might start with Gargantuan Panagruel, go to Don Quixote, go to Tristram Shandy, and then go to this book. Like, there's sort of a direct sure. line there. Um, I borrowed that sequence partly from Milan Kundera in mm. The Curtain, which has been referenced uh, in our Don Quixote episodes, yep. certainly. I still haven't read it. Um, but I need to. I need to. I need to reread it. Actually, but it's on my bookshelf. Yeah, I'm I'm staring at it right now. Actually, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so having reread Tristram Shandy, I was struck by his narrative voice also. Which I mean, I'm struck with that every time. Sure. Um, and I thought it was inimitable, except that Diderot certainly emitted it in this one. He did what? He emitted it. Okay. He did the same technique and did it well, so it wasn't a cheap ripoff. Oh, thank you for defining that. You're welcome. Um, yes. Defining what? That. Thank you. Um, so, <laughs> where are we? So, yeah, uh, in Tristram Shandy, there's a similar um, mechanism, except that in Tristram Shandy, especially this reread, it struck me that that narrator, first of all, is first person. Hmm. So there's sort of a, a textually relevant reason for him to be addressing the reader. Because when you have a first-person narrative, it's inherently a little bit more personal. Um, secondly, what struck me this reread of, of Tristram Shandy was just that like a lot of the narrative reminded me of like a monologue by someone in the 18th century like sitting at a bar. Mm. Like if you if you imagine the most like garrulous drunken Englishman at a bar um in the 18th century and envision that person both garrulous and like friendly like Falstaffian almost and you envision that person narrating the contents of Tristram Shandy a lot of it makes a lot more sense than it might otherwise. Um, and I think the narrative quality, hmm. to circle finally back to the response I was doing to what you said, is different in this. I couldn't envision this narrator at a bar, and also he's like a third-person narrator, but he still has these extremely, like, personal uh, asides. You said you couldn't envision him at a bar? Not not in the same way that okay. I could envision Tristram Shandy telling sure. a story from a bar stool. I agree with that. I think more or less I envision this narrator and I and I do think this novel is adopting from a great tradition of the Socratic dialogue philosophical sort of thing as well as Tristram Shandy. Mm. And so I picture this narrator in a sort of philosopher's university sure. college thing sort yeah. of like not the way we can conceptualize a university or a college today but in the sense of you are my students my disciples following me around learning from me yeah and much, we're gonna meet at this place and i'm gonna talk and you're gonna talk and we're gonna discuss these things much more the like 
classical or medieval style yeah. like symposium. Yeah, yeah, more of a symposium sort of style. A meeting of the minds and maybe yep. this being France also some wine. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and possibly some other things. Yeah, perhaps even meeting around a table in an inn somewhere with a with a buxom hostess feeding them bottle after bottle of wine from her cellar. I was going to ask you if it was necessary that the hostess be buxom, but then I it realized is. what you were doing yep, there. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, because that is central, both literally and figuratively, to the book. Um, <laughs> because, yes, if you open up to the middle of the book, you are right in the smack-dab middle of the story that this hostess is telling about Madame la Pomeraye. Yes. Um, and the Marquis. Um, it's interesting. I've name-checked... The History of Philosophy podcast, two out of our last three episodes now, <laughs> if not three out of them. Um, but in that in that show, talking about uh, some of the the Plato's dialogues, Plato's Socratic dialogues, where mm. Socrates is the main character. This what it almost makes me think of now is the idea that Diderot. Is doing a Socratic dialogue, but with the reader as one of the interlocutors. Mm. Whereas in Plato's actually actual writings, it's much more like a stage script where you have a yep. self-contained world of people talking to each other who aren't directly talking to you. But I say this because the host of of this um, podcast, he uh, he he at a certain point gets to saying that a lot of the Socratic dialogues don't necessarily conclude satisfactorily um Mm. even republic plato's great work uh as well as some of the other shorter and and not quite as well-known dialogues um often what is happening is socrates and several interlocutors are debating the definition of some word in Mm. republic famously it's justice of course Mm -hmm. um and you know in in other dialogues it's it's other things but Often these dialogues don't end in sort of a neat bow. They don't necessarily end with Socrates hmm. being right, either by his own lights or by someone else's, um, let alone anyone else being right. They just sort of, in especially in some of the, the shorter earlier ones, they often end with Socrates and, and whoever he's talking to sort of saying, well, we made a bunch of attempts at defining this word and all of them failed, so maybe we should, like, go home and go to bed and push this off for another day. Mm. Um, and if I'm correct... So they end inconclusively. Yes. That's kind of the point. And the, and the point almost is the inconclusiveness, not yes. for its own sake, but to make the point that the, the journey is almost the greater part. Sure. Um, your attempt to inquire into this is really the philosophical action itself yeah so like if i'm correct in the thesis that i introduced last episode that um the philosophical sort of bedrock of this is not actually about fatalism versus free will but it's an exploration of virtue Mm. which of course many philosophers who considered the great philosophical question what Mm. is virtue then uh wow I just completely forgot what I was saying. The journey and the yeah. Question. Then it it may make some sense that we don't necessarily get to any sort of conclusion 
within this book. We just mm. we just go on the journey and ask the question. Sure. And we don't get a conclusion here. It is just explorations of questions. Yeah. Um, without a full resolution, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, you know, now that you bring that up, that could be a very deliberate sort of thing that Diderot is doing. Which, you know, it is it is structured in that sort of dialogue way. Right. With the you know, almost stage play sort of dialogue presentation. But then right. you've got that interposition of the narrator talking or giving us stage directions, so to speak. Right. Or whatever else is happening. Um, sometimes even just dialogue within dialogue. Right. Um, which is fascinating too just the structure is fascinating itself but that that um lack of conclusion is an interesting point i think it does kind of feed into what we talked about last episode about how funny this book is because it is just funny to not have a conclusion that way right it strikes me as monty python-esque which (laughs) is kind of a reversal of the temporal flow but that (laughs) no that's interesting though because Monty Python's um, skits in the in the TV show, The Flying Circus, yep. famously often did not have punchlines, exactly. did not have conclusions. Yes. And from what I understand, they got to that style of comedy sort of just by accident or by intuition. Sure. Because they, they've gone on record as saying they just figured out that most of their skits were funnier if they didn't have punchlines. Right, because, like, the premise was funny enough. Yeah, yeah. That's all you need is, is a good, funny premise, and then people are satisfied with that. And I think it's the same here. I don't feel dissatisfied with the way this book no. ends. Well, because if you notice, what we've been talking about this entire time has not yeah. been the plot of this book. Yeah. Which brings me... I, I want to come back to that in a second. But the whole idea that, you know, we're not worried necessarily about the plot so much, so, so the resolution really doesn't matter because it's right. that's not the point. The plot isn't the point. And so that's what I want to come back to now is the point that, you know, the narrator objects that this is not a novel and right. you laugh at him because, yes, of course it's a novel. You're making this up. But also, no, you're right. It's not a novel. Right. Well, <laughs> it's interesting everything we've just been saying about the conclusion because in a novelistic sense, there is a conclusion Dio sure. rather quickly ties off. He he gets Jacques married off, and the you know the master yep. uh, goes off, and and Does everyone thing. sort of lives happily ever after in as much of a sort of right realist sense as you can. And yet that rings completely hollow because it's yes. concluding something that has never been set up. Yeah, it's Except not set up at all. Point. Exactly, and it's it, it. There's nothing set up for it. It's kind of a Deus ex machina in a negative way conclusion. Yeah, where it's just like, oh, this thing happened, and now we're all gonna scatter. And okay, yep, we're good. Like um, I needed, I needed somewhere for the text to stop. Yeah, so I just built a world where the text can stop. Which, like, on the one hand, if you've been writing something for thirty years, it's like I need to be done here, done. Okay. Yeah. But also, it's kind of a stroke of brilliance to end that way. Right. Because it, it effectively, it, it functions in the, as the classical ending of a short story. Yeah. Um, that also some novels do it, but, but that effect where the very last line sometimes or paragraph of a short story um, just completely changes everything that went before it or casts it into a new light. And that's what this does. It, it concludes what, 
if you were reading this at the, the most surfacey of surface levels, it concludes what would be the story. But by doing that, it shows you everything about how this is not that sort of a book. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting uh, things in what is my chapter 7, where, so just as we're sort of drawing to the conclusion here, mm. um, one, to, to sort of support what I was saying about the, the novelistic heritage, um, as well as some of the themes of, of this book, um, within, oh, what do we got, like 12 pages of my ending, my ending is, or my page number here is 257, I don't know if that does literally anything for yeah. so... They're, you know, the Master and Shock know they're heading towards some sort of denouement. I don't necessarily know what it is exactly yet, but the Master says, You were born two or three centuries too late. And Jacques, of course, says, No, sir, I was born just in time, like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, a fatalist would say that, right? Right. Um, the Master says, You would have been a great augur. Uh, an augur, of course, being like a... a, a divinator of, mm -hmm. of some kind or even a fortune teller um Jacques says i don't know precisely what an augur is and i'm not much worried about knowing <laughs> which of course both a fatalist and an augur would say yep uh now um the the master says why it's one of the most important chapters in your treatise on divinations and Jacques says, it's true, but it's such a long time since I wrote it that I can't remember a word. <laughs> uh, which is almost... So infuriating. First of all, so infuriating. Second of all, a sentence almost out of, like, Eugene Ionesco. Okay. Yep. Or even Samuel Beckett. Like, a sentence from a, an absurdist play that would be written 200 yep. years in the future. Well, and just, like, in a broad sense, this whole idea of the author forgetting what he's written... Right. ...is just... in. Like, okay, so the whole way this fatalism is framed, the way it's termed, is it's written up above. Right. And so for something to be written, we think of, if, if it's written, it's written and it's permanent, it's unchangeable. Right. But if the author is still there working with it, and he's written it, maybe he forgot what he wrote. Right. And it could change. Right. <laughs> so, because that's what authors do. They right. forget what they've written. Which... Interestingly, now I'm, now I'm paralleling this being towards the conclusion of this book. I'm paralleling it with uh, the conclusion of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, mm. um, which Mark Twain, I think, wanted to publish within a year or two of Tom Sawyer, and instead it took him like eight to ten years to write. <laughs> and right at the end of Huck Finn... Um, Huck, the first-person narrator, says, If I'd known how much trouble it was to make a book... I never would have started in the first place, <laughs> which some people see as Twain's, you know, comment on right. how long this freaking thing took him to finally get done. Um, anyway, uh, such a long time that I wrote it that I can't remember a word. Look here, sir. Here's what knows more than all the augers, fatidic geese, and holy chickens of the Republic. <laughs> And that's the gourd. Let's interrogate the gourd. Now, of yes. course, Jacques means his drinking gourd. Yep. So, like, let's take some wine and ignore the fact that all 18th century Frenchmen are apparently alcoholics. Um, <laughs> Jacques took up his gourd and consulted it at great length. 
His master pulled out his watch and his snuff box, mm. looked at the time, took his pinch, and Jacques said. Yep. So there's that neat three-part comfort thing yep. that the master does. Jacques says, it seems to me that I now see destiny a little less black. Tell me where I was. Um, which, two things about that. Uh, one that does fit in with both a very French, a very European, and broadly speaking, a very Western concept of... Um, paralleling drunkards with augurs or fortune tellers mm. or um, like well, blind prophets, just... people who can see somehow the unbalancing effect that the liquor has on them, I say right. this without any self-interest, has the effect <laughs> of making them more insightful and, depending on the work, perhaps legitimately prophetic. Well, and just the idea, too, of like even the oracle at Delphi yeah. being imbibing drugs yes <laughs> you know? yes or even the the bacchanals yes um, mm-hmm. in the ancient yep, world yep. Having... you get into this this high this ecstatic yeah um, what am i looking for a state of mind is what's this different state of mind heightened state of mind whatever yeah, yeah. that you know even the terminology we use if you're high you're you know closer to the divine right right yeah so yeah so that was that was point one about that little passage. Point two is that this is in fact a gigantic gargantuan pantagruel reference, oh. um, because gargantuan pantagruel is uh, five books long, um, and similar to Tristram Shandy, each book was written at you know it came out one book at a time, um, but gargantuan pantagruel is about. They're, both of the, the title characters are giants um, who are also either very rich people or, like, the rulers of kingdoms, or uh, Gargantua becomes sort of this Arthurian figure who um, uh, leads a band of adventurers on these sort of larger-than-life adventures. Um, but the entire third book of Gargantuan Pantagruel is devoted to one of the characters... Uh, it's been too long since I read it. I can't remember. It's either Gargantua or one of his chief like lieutenants or whatever, but asks himself if it is good that a man should get married. And mm. um, he takes up this philosophical question of... Um, mm. Partly what he's worried about is the... The fact that the fact of marriage um, inherently embodies the possibility of getting cuckolded, of your, your mm-hmm. spouse cheating on you. Um, and basically, in a sense, the philosophical question that is both like taken very seriously but also satirically, um, which should be a balance that seems familiar at this point, uh, that... Um, that question becomes this the the central driving force of what plot there is in this in this volume of Gargantuan Pantagruel, um, and this character consults literally everyone, and he's you know it's it's the the question should a man get married is it is it is it good to get married or is it better to get married than not but also like is the risk that you of having a you know marriage relationship is it worth the, or is the reward of that worth the risk that inherently comes with it? Literally, simply the possibility that someone else could betray you. Mm. Um, 
And so he does. He consults augurs, are mentioned. He mm. consults priests, um, oracles. Literally, it's the sort of almost Shaggy Dog esque story of um, this person consulting everyone from determinist philosophers to literal dice rollers. Like at one point, there's a game of dice where this character tries to just allow fate to decide whether he should get married. But of course, every roll of the dice that he decides what it should be beforehand, he then questions whether he defined the words correctly Uh and whether that means what it means. But once again, um, the point certainly of like the entertainment that uh, Rabelais was laying out and Mm -hmm. perhaps the point for the characters is not this conclusion that I don't think is ever actually like come to um but it's not the point the point is this journey and mm. is asking this question that in Gargantuan Panagruel pretty explicitly and maybe in this one in a more subtle way is considered just unanswerable mm-hmm. yeah I don't know if I have anything to add to that I mean just the fact that Panagruel is mentioned by name in the book yeah so like it's not by accident that that's in there but um and i haven't read that either so i don't know how much more i have to add to that except the idea that the the idea of answering the question is kind of left out here the the idea of having an answer is is again just funny right it's 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 considered absurd um i I, we we mentioned just briefly the idea of the the hostess and about the center of the book who's telling the story of Madame Le Pomeray. Yeah, which we could do a whole marquee like that episode on just that. Just that story within the bit story for is sure. huge in here. Yeah, um, and you have these interruptions by Jacques and his master, which are. They, they present opposite moral sides of this. One yes. thinks like she's the demon and the other thinks that the Marquis is the demon. Right. And they, they object to one or the other and they argue about that as she's telling the story. But the idea, again, of, of presenting an answer here is right. laughable. Because the, the impression that we get as the reader is that neither one is correct. Right. Um, there is, in fact, a point uh, in here, I tried to underline it, where they were arguing about various things... And the narrator himself says both were right. Oh, there it is. It's on page 37 in mine. Um, And there they were started off on an interminable quarrel about women. One Uh claimed they were good, the other wicked, and they were both right. One said they were (laughs) stupid, the other clever, and they were both right. One that they were unfaithful, the other faithful, and they were both right. One that they were mean, the other generous, and they were both right. One that they were beautiful, the other ugly, and they were both right. One talkative, the other discreet. One open, the other deceitful. One ignorant, the other enlightened. One moral, the other immoral. One foolish, the other wise. One big, with the other small, and they were both right. Which again, of course, it's like, yes, if you're talking about this broad category, there will be representatives of all of the things you are saying within this category. Yes. So, you are both right, but that, that carries over then to that point where both of them are talking about this story that... Uh, the hostess is telling. Right. And they're both right. Right. Because both Madame Le Pomeray and the Marquis are horrible people. Right. And, <laughs> but the, the question is, it, it, the, the morality isn't actually the point. The, the point is this story to see what's happening when these people interact. Right. What occurs surrounding their lives by the effect of other people upon their lives. 
Right. And this is maybe too where where I said early in the last episode that um, the question of virtue like doesn't necessarily matter in this realm. Yeah. Is to this point too, and I don't know. Like it depends on how we define virtue too. But just the idea of morality is kind of where I'm putting that in that sphere of morality. It's like it doesn't necessarily matter a whole lot because all we're seeing is the effect that people have on one another. Sure. That's kind of where where I where I'm seeing this falling is that it's describing the effects people have on one another. I mean, certainly you could argue about different definitions of virtue, though I think what you just said is roughly the the general idea we've mm-hmm. been going with. Um, just the plebes definition. You could also argue what matters means. Um, yeah, because in a very, I think if I think if uh, uh, or I sus, I was gonna say I suspect if Denise Diderot heard you saying this, but I more want to say I suspect if the narrator of this novel heard you saying um, the the idea that virtue doesn't matter, he would also say. Yeah, of course it doesn't matter. This novel doesn't matter. Sure, um, sure. You know, so uh, I guess that's actually really all I have to say there. Though it is interesting because um, the uh, I, I that that passage that you uh, quoted at length just now about you know Jacques said the one thing and his master said the other and they were both right. I couldn't find it in mine though. I do remember I quite thoroughly underlined it when yep. I did read it. Um, but when you go down to uh, the story of Madame Le Pamarche, uh you do get this very um, almost morally balanced, in a negative sense, kind of story mm. until the ver- what is for me the very end of that chapter um, in which there is a long passage where the narrator breaks in and does moralize at length. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, bits I underline from it. Uh, and he, and he's, he's moralizing with the reader. It's, it's another one of these, um, one of these dialogues with the reader. Uh, and he's, for his part, and perhaps against, though I don't, I don't know my history of the time well enough, but I suspect perhaps against some of the... Uh, trends of the time, he very much takes the woman's part here. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, if this woman had done as much to win her husband just reward for his service, if she had prostituted herself to a minister or even a head clerk for a cordon or a first regimental company to the depository of the beneficial list in return for a rich abbey, that would seem natural to you. You are used to it. Um, yeah. Which is a fascinating commentary on the role of wives in this pre-revolutionary France. Yeah. That's alluded to elsewhere... Um, occasionally directly and often sideways, the idea that wives throughout this culture do what is essentially prostitution, mm-hmm. um, or at least light prostitution, if they're not required to sleep with the uh, the person who's the rank above their husband in the military, which sometimes they are just required to actually sleep them with them to get their husband to advance. Even if they're not supposed to do that, they're supposed to like flirt with them, or at least you know, imply uh, that they'll sleep with them. Yep. Um, And you're used to that, Diderot says. But when she avenges herself for perfidy, you rise up up against her instead of seeing that. Her resentment makes you indignant only because you are incapable of feeling such deep resentment yourself. 
Or because you don't make such an issue of a woman's virtue. <laughs> Have you reflected somewhat upon the sacrifices Madame Le Pomeray had made to the Marquis? And then later later on on down this long paragraph. Um, a man can stab another for a mere gesture, for a contradiction, and yet it's not permitted to a virtuous woman, lost, dishonored, and betrayed, to throw the traitor into a courtesan's arms. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he's obviously assuming certain things about the reader, which may not be oh, true, yes. and about the culture, <clears throat> which I suspect were true at the time. They may right. not transcend cultures. Um, but he's certainly... This is all of the arguments that he's making here are in no way amoral. He's sure. in fact to point out that the reader is as much of a hypocrite as he kind of makes the reader here. Um, yeah, you have to have a certain moral basis. He's just questioning whether your moral basis is what you think it is. Yeah, no, and you know that just. Throughout the whole book, he does this to the reader, too, yeah. applying things to us or, you know, putting words in our mouths. Yeah, often like. not super complimentary ones. Right. Frequently, frequently not. Which is not probably the best commercial strategy. No. It's certainly funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, he's balancing this very thin line that, like, certain, you know, stand-up comedians over the years perhaps have tried where they're insulting the audience, but as long as the the funniness of it is a higher register than the insult of it. Like, right. it's fine. Yeah. But it's certainly a very da- potentially dangerous balance. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, just, um, he is, he is moralizing in this section and against his culture at the time, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in contradiction to a lot of the, the ways they acted at that time. But, um, like you say, it doesn't necessarily transcend cultures the way that did. But, you know, it, we, we would maybe find a lot more sympathy with his perspective nowadays. Yeah, it's a, it's a, in but, a lot of ways, it's a much more modern perspective. Yeah. But again, I don't know if that's necessarily ultimately the point because I don't trust the narrator a whole lot. Uh-huh. Like, because again, he's putting words into my mouth and, and accusing me of things and very confrontational. And it's like, all right, you're angry at me. And you think I'm dumb, and so I'm going to not believe that... In a sense, I, I agree that it's not necessarily the point in that... Right. I don't think... I don't think defending the woman is the point. Right. In, or in other words, if you sort of took this culture and flipped it on its head, where women had the power and men didn't, he would be speaking up for the men. Right. Like, the point is not really either side of the answer to that question or no. that, that earlier question that you know sort of the debate between Jacques and his master about women none of none of those actual like battle of the sexes things are the ultimate point i think the point he's making is that many of our assumptions and the things that we sure. think and therefore the actions that we do are unquestioned and hypocritical. Yeah, sure. And and I think that is something that definitely overarchs the entire novel in general. It's just yeah. pointing out assumptions. Yeah. Um, which we, we talked about this fact that this fatalism idea or uh, Calvinism, the, the double predestination idea, which right. fed into this more, this broader fatalism idea, right. is 
an assumption of right. the time. And so it's like, all right, let's take that assumption and well, it's not look necessarily at it an more assumption. broadly. But it's the popular philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suspect if if Diderot were writing this now, he would uh, take aim at the idea of individualism or the idea of individual autonomy. At least if you were writing within American culture. Right, right. These these things that are um, the popular philosophy, but even that, you know, the the culture at large doesn't think of it as a philosophy. It's just, you know, this is me. This is who I am. This is this is how I live. This is my life, and you're just describing me. G.K. Chesterton. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not going to get the quote it's exactly right at all, so it'll be worse. But he said something like that: people either have a coherent personal philosophy, or they have bits of other people's philosophies that they've picked up without knowing. Sure, but you sure. only have one or the other of those. If you don't have one, you have the other one. Right. Um, and I think. You know, he was talking about British or broader European culture a hundred plus years ago. I mm. think Diderot would have said the same thing about his culture now. I think that's exactly what he's and addressing. I think that you could say it about our culture now. And I don't know if that has to do with the cultural streams uh, that we're all sort of part of, or if that's just a part of human nature. Right, yeah. But either way, yes, I think you're right. That's, that's think exactly that's... what he's addressing. You you pointed out the fact earlier that, you know, Jacques is the intellectual of this pair. Right. Which is unexpected. Which I think is, is part of the point that he's pointing that out, that this this servant is an intellectual here, therefore calling attention to what those of the lower classes aren't. Right. And that's a paradox that... Um would have been very stark i think at the time this was published that maybe is somewhat lost to history because sure. uh, i mean first of all we don't live in the type of culture where the master servant dichotomy is really particularly relevant or at least not obviously relevant right and even the cultural artifacts that we have from cultures that were often the ones that we sort of lionize these days are the ones that problematize that. So we're used mm-hmm. to some extent to the idea of like the sassy intellectual yeah. servant who is way smarter than the master. But at the time, that would have been directly contradictory to all of the assumptions of the culture. Right. The culture like, would have assumed in... the master would have had the opportunity to go to university, <clears throat> um, you know, would have had tutors, whereas Jacques would have just picked up bits and pieces. Yeah. And Diderot is very convincingly flipping that dynamic in, on its head. In in real life that's the situation, but you know, Diderot is also drawing on this this tradition of, you know, Don Quixote with Sancho. And, yeah. you know, that even is connected to the Shakespearean sort of fool aspect, right. you know, we can, to go back to our Don Quixote discussion about like King Lear and the fool in in that play right. where the fool is the smart one, the wise one. Which is not only a Shakespearean trope, but it but that comes out of a medieval uh, Yes, that, that's got of, a huge long tradition yeah. and 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 such. And so that you know, in it's fact, the same thing here with Jacques. Yeah. And going back to Gargantua and Panagruel, mm. um an obvious uh you know, an inspiration for this book so obvious that you haven't read it and you've still picked it up. Yep. Um Mikhail Bakhtin wrote a seminal work of literary criticism, uh, basically demonstrating. I think it was his PhD thesis, but it was published as a as a book later, and it was demonstrating that Gargantua and Pantagruel was an embodiment of the 
oh, and now I can't think of the the term, but basically like the idea of what is now Mardi Gras, but um, oh. sort of the the uh, whatever the festival season right leading up to Lent was. Lent um, season, Epiphany season. The uh, it's it's what like Fat Tuesday comes out of, and the Mardi Gras celebration, mm-hmm. um, which have their roots in medieval European festivals, where the the season before Lent was this sort of blowout of mm. of uh, celebration and. Um, uh, you know, there was feasting, there was tomfoolery, sort of the idea of the Feast of Fools. Um, ah. And that was a, a medieval tradition in which uh, the fool was made into the wise men, and, you know, people yeah. could, you could make fun of the nobility and of the rulers with impunity, uh-huh. where the, the lower classes got to sort of. Uh, Carnival. That's the Carnival. That's I was looking got for. It. All right. Yeah. Um, the you know, and the, the lower classes got to sort of speak their wisdom to the rulers, um, and so Bakhtin argued that uh, Gargantuan Panadrol was essentially Fat Tuesday as literature, or mm. Carnival as literature, um, and uh, I think that Diderot is consciously in that tradition here. Sure. Well, and it, he's just consciously derivative yeah. in general. I yeah. mean, not only of Panic Rule, but of Tristram Shandy and Don yes. Quixote and other works yeah. as well. Like, he refers to so many of them by name. And that, that again, what for me is the last chapter, what for you is just sort of the last... The end. The end. Um, I mentioned that he names name-checks Panic Rule. There's a passage that the footnotes in my edition... Um, uh, say it's derivative of Tristram Shandy. Uh, I was I've now been re- rereading um, Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, mm. um, which is another one that I'm guessing Diderot probably would have known. And certainly, uh, it's one of the last dialogues with Denise and and Jacques, um, where Jacques is like, "Oh, I have a crush on someone," and Denise is like, "Oh, I'll scratch your eyes out," but of course, it's her. Um, and it's a very Tom Jonesian kind mm. of a dialogue, and there are other bits even besides that as we get to the end that's also um, a derivative of Tristram Shandy. There's uh, I underlined and wrote DQ next to a passage, three pages from the end of mine, where Diderot says, according to some memoranda which I have good reason to distrust, I could <laughs> perhaps supply what is missing in the history of, of Jacques and, and his master. Mm-hmm. But whatever good would that be, one can be interested only in the truth, which is a sentence, and also the, those couple preceding it, both very much of this book, yep. but also very much, very Don Quixotean. Yep. Um, and so it's interesting to me, you know, it almost feels like as he's winding down this book, besides griping about how freaking long it took him, he's mm-hmm. also sort of like, saluting or name-checking or saying farewell to some of his inspirations. Sure, sure. this book as well. Yeah, no, and that's that's just... And, and again, it's it feeds into the unreliability of the narrator, too. Yeah. That is deliberately unreliable and seems to call attention to it. It's like, no, you're going to listen to me because I said so. Right. It's kind of how the narrator treats the reader. Oh, uh, when, when I was looking through... Uh, some passages before I marked and then lost 
uh, passage where the narrator literally says, because you've begun my story, as everyone knows, uh, if you begin a story, you are obligated to finish it. Yeah. I know um, what you're talking about, and I can't also, remember where that is. But Also, on my thesis from last time about the automaton, the narrator mm. accuses the reader at one point of calling him an automaton. Yes, yes, he does. I so remember like that, that distinctly. That uh, um, image, once again, crops up repeatedly, uh, which is, you know, problematized within... It's, it's interesting that, you know, this already ancient art form of the novel or the the story, the history, quote-unquote, mm. um, that that's being opposed to this hyper-modern technology where an automaton really can only do one thing, especially yeah. at the time, uh, as opposed to a novel which seems like it can only do one thing, but as I think we've demonstrated the last two hours' worth of talking about this one, it can do all kinds of things for yes. Every and different person. I, I think I think the objection ultimately is coming down to considering anyone an automaton, right? Because the the re, the, the narrator himself, um, uh, oh, he adds this um, talking. He says, "Here's the second half, second paragraph at the end of the book, which has been copied from the life and times of Tristan Shandy." Um, and then uh, he, after a bit, he says. Uh, the plagiarist adds the following exhortation. If you are not satisfied with what I have revealed to you of Jacques Love's reader, you may go away and do better. I consent to it. But however you go about it, I am sure you will conclude as I have. So they're the plagiarist, the one who's copying Tristram yeah. Shandy into this story of Jacques and his loves. Right. And is adding this bit like, all right, go ahead and you know make it up yourself, but you're going to come to the same conclusion. Right. And then the narrator has the reader responding to that. Right. And saying, you're wrong, insidious slanderer. I will not conclude as you have. Denise was a good girl, talking about Jacques' ultimate bride right. here. And so, again, it's like people will assume that perspective of the other. Yeah. But the other will automatically object to it. Right. That, no, you're simplifying it, or no, I don't agree with you, or whatever. The, the idea of the automaton cannot exist. There are no real automatons that are people. <laughs> right. And also, uh, we started out accusing this novel of being trash written by a middle school boy. And both the passage in Tristram Shandy and also this passage are also about a hand job. <laughs> oh, I've died. Yep. Um... Which, to be fair, to bring it back intellectual, if I can salvage this at all... Nope, you um, can't. The, the entire question of sex is what problematizes everything about virtue in this novel. Sure. But also, what rescues us, that and drink, apparently, yep. what rescues us from pure fatalism or pure determinism. Yeah. I want, and I'm, if that doesn't make sense, gentle listener, go... Uh, wait, what was the passage you just read? Um, do, go, be do better, better yourself. It's I quite, consent to it. Or mine says it's quite all right with me. <laughs> either way, yes. Yes. Um, I want to point out just briefly, can I yeah. take a brief names with Michael? Oh, here? of course. Name. 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 Name with Michael.
Um, the the woman Jacques right the marries what's her name? Denise, which is a feminized vor- name. Oh my god, what name? <laughs> Uh, For sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that was an accident. Jacques well, especially marries I think... the author at the end. Yes. Um, um, which I think, like, especially in French, because I think the French would probably say Denise pretty closely to how we say it. And yep. in French, this man's name would be Denis. Yep. So, yep. so very, very, very close. Oh my gosh. Yep. So... How did I not... Twice through this book, and I still twice through that. this book, and you still didn't catch that uh, Jacques Pierre is the author. That's why you're the special names with Michael. That's Moore. that's why I get that that uh, special special part there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that that's that. I, I don't know if there's any more to it than just the fact that he thought it was funny, right? Um, that's <laughs> really you all. could. And this is this is the fact that I have been to graduate school in literature for all the good it did me. You could go into a whole thing about uh, the reader as a masculine figure and the author as a feminine figure because he's passive once he okay, puts the okay. book out there. But I really don't want to. I already no. made one hand job reference and I feel yeah, a did. little bit dirty from that. Yeah, so. you should. This is a family show. <laughs> Kids listen to this. <laughs> they're real, real confused, except for when they're scared. Yep. But yep. they do listen. They do. Clearly. What's up, you cool kids? <laughs> wow. Anyway. Yeah, good one. Thanks. I made that up just now. Yeah, that I'm was sure that was all me. I'm sure it was. Um I don't I don't know. Like, okay, I, I need to have a concluding thought about this, but also I feel like my concluding thought on this is it's a book and it's it's a thing. Um, yeah, once again, we could do a, a Gene Wolfe. Or a Gerald Murnane and peel well, back the layers far enough and get to, to the point, it's a book. It's a book. Which, but, I mean, is closer to the surface in this one than in a couple of those other ones because sometimes the narrator just mentions that casually. Yeah, or yeah. Or angrily. Or, or angrily, yep. Just kind of bitter. He does strike me as just kind of bitter, the narrator. Like, he's just really mad at everyone reading his book. Yeah, um, but like in, in a caring way. Yeah, he he also like, loves us. Yeah, a, a coworker of mine was actually uh, she's someone who taught like Sunday school and worked with like doing ministry for troubled youth and other youth. Um, in in so far as whatever that distinction is, and she was like, sometimes I just had to point out that Jesus was having a cranky day. <laughs> who touched my robe? And, <laughs> Then she was like, and the farther in I got, the more days like that it seemed like he was having. <laughs> and I definitely don't want to be quite sacrilegious enough to compare Denise Diderot to Jesus, because I don't think either of them would appreciate that. But there is a certain, like, angry gospel or righteous anger. And I think sure. in attempting to expose the reader's sort of unquestioned and potentially damaging assumptions... Um, Dero probably did get angry and annoyed at how like blindly hypocritical people were, but I don't think his pointing them out is anything less than an act of affection. Mm-hmm. Sure, I, I I see what you mean. That's yeah. ob- that one is obviously just pure opinion, but I will I will stand by it. But uh, no, I I get it, and I and I think that Dero does have that sort of love for the reader. Yeah, in in some degree or other. But, um, yeah, I, I, I also feel like 
before I say more about this book, after saying things for two hours about this book, right. I want to find out more about Diderot's actual philosophy. Yeah. I'm almost afraid to find out more about Diderot's actual philosophy. Um, partly because I'm just afraid that I'll go and, you know, find out, like, oh, no, he was just a determinist. You know? Sure. And... And that's would be both boring and disappointing and disheartening, um, right? Because it heart- seems like there's so much more than just fatalism in this book. Well, and you know, I I do strongly believe that authors, especially in fiction, <clears throat> often put more onto the page than they actually meant to. But that 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 does not inherently devalue what they ended up putting on the page. Sure. Um, that's, you know, closer to a pure relativism than I'm generally comfortable with. But um, I don't think that it is untrue. Um, so, that you know, there is that. I also, I know that uh, I was partly inspired to read this book by uh, Kundera's The Curtain mm. um, that we name-checked earlier and probably forever. Um <laughs> But he he actually has some re- offhand reference in that book where he says that Diderot, in his like fictional works like Shock the Fatalist, was much more like playful and much less dogmatic. And mm. he uses some word like cranky. It's not cranky, but um, <laughs> that also just makes me want to not read any of his actual philosophy. Right, because like this was Jacques so B. much fun. I want more yeah. of the fun. Well, and I want... Mm-hmm. And not only that, I, I much prefer the ambiguity from someone sure. like Diderot and the, the exploration rather than the need to be dogmatic. Sure. And, like, yeah. I, I could see this as the sort of thing, too, where if Diderot is a fatalist, this is where he allows himself to play. Right. Um... That yes, all things are determined, and there is no change, and no um, no alterations from what has already been determined will happen or allowed. So here's where I'm going in this fiction is where I can create a world where it is possible for things to be altered. Right. Well, and I can have control in this world. Yeah, and as Kundera says, you know that's the strength of the novel, and probably the reason that as a genre, the novel has had the massive staying power that it has is that novels create a space for ambiguity. Sure. You don't have to be dogmatic or come to a conclusion in a novel. You can just embody the ambiguity and yeah. uh, somehow the alchemy and the magic of a novel is that that becomes something that people can love. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. All right, we're fixing to go massively I think, over I think, time I here. think that's that's enough on on that. So well, it's not, but it it's never not, will be. But no, so, but it's written up yonder that we stop that we can at continue on to ratings at this point. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Ratings. No punishments this time around again. Huh. So we're we're too good. Yeah. We're maybe we good. should. Maybe we should see about mm. doing something to do some to punish ourselves more because I think Maybe really people you know probably really come to this show just to just for the punishments yeah just to hear us 
harm ourselves or each other? If that's what kind of listener you are, seek help. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, all right. Well, let's go on to ratings uh, and start then with the scotch. Ethan, uh, what do you think of Polly's Casks Double Barrel Age Single Malt Scotch Whiskey? You I punctuated it. Dropped it. Yeah. Uh, punctuated You You started by dropping it and then... Or by almost dropping it, and then you ended by dropping it. So that seems poetic. Yep. But at no time was the scotch damaged, so right. it's okay. It um, is. I bookended it, though. Yeah. No, it was beautiful, really. Uh, what did I think of Polly's casks? Can I can I read a little more of the back here? Yeah, if you want. So to. we talked about um, this. what would happen if fine single malt scotch whiskey was finished in the same bourbon barrels that had been used to age those beautiful Californian barley wines stouts, and special imperial bitters. The question deserved an answer, so 60 used Firestone Walker barrels were duly shipped across the Atlantic to the Tullibardeen Distillery in the Scottish Highlands. Thus how it can be of multiple companies here. Yeah. Meanwhile, 526 years earlier... Wow. Did you catch that? I did. Yeah. Yep. Quite a meanwhile. Meanwhile, 526 years earlier, young King James IV of Scotland grew thirsty on the way to his coronation. Stopping by the local brewery, Tullibardine, he made history as the first person to purchase a pint of beer. So enamored was he of the brew, King James bestowed his first royal charter on Tullibardine. In 1947, Tullibardine was transformed into a distillery and today produces some of the Highlands' most sought-after and rare whiskeys. It's just history and stuff here happening here. But uh, the Firestone Walker Brewing Company was at the vanguard of the American craft beer revolution in 1996. Firestone Walker created its first beer in a small facility rented from the Firestone Vineyard in California's California's Santa Barbara County. Now a multi-award winning family-owned brewery, the passion for creating some of the world's finest draft beers has never been stronger. And so David, Polly, and Steve helped fill those barrels in Scotland with extraordinary Tilbardine single malt and left them to age for a further 12 months. The result is a truly unique and exceptional limited edition single malt. With a hint of the new world, a double-barreled celebration, a whiskey that quite literally has no peers. There's an awful lot about beer on that scotch label. Right? <laughs> so much. <sighs> so, rate the scotch. Uh, that's my rating for the scotch. Eh? That's about a three-star rating, I would three say. Stars? Yeah. Three stars? Three stars? I'm, I'm not sorry I drank it. Sure. I was never displeased while drinking it. There just wasn't that much that I found interesting about it, I guess. Sure. Um, I mean, there were, there were some things. I would call it almost the comfort food of scotches. Mm. Um, like, it, there wasn't anything that complex or challenging, but it was nice. Like, you know, there was definitely some... You could taste sort of the... It was very oaky. It was very oaky and woody, mm. woody which I appreciate. Um, I didn't get more than just like a hint or a whiff of any smoke um there was maybe some like lemongrass going on mm-hmm. and maybe some just like slight citrus but i don't know it just balanced into something i call fine like mm. not fine as in super fine just fine as in good enough mm. um so not the worst like there's some stuff going on with it but just nothing that stuck out to me all that much sure uh i'm gonna echo that i hate to 
to agree with you, but I'm going to give it <laughs> three stars as well. It's oaky, it's grassy, it's kind of plain. Yeah. Um, the the color, too, kind of surprised me as it was coming out of the bottle is how clear it was. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's not vodka clear, but it's, it's really light. Especially for scotch. Right, for a scotch. For... It does not look like a dark... Yeah, liquor. even for like bourbon or rye, it would be a super light, very color. light, very light. It's you can see straight through it, no problem. Yeah, um, just kind Which, of with a yellow tint. I was kind of interested by that because yeah, no, it's lighter colored scotch. Yeah, and lighter colored whiskey can be quite good in sure. its own unique way, but it just there was like a thinness to it. It, it yeah. wasn't. It Nothing wasn't about complex. It was rich at all. I, I didn't get a story from this scotch. Yeah. It was kind of the same from beginning to end, which is also to say it didn't get worse. Yeah, it certainly as it went on, sustained which can happen. Quality, but yeah. it, you know, I mean, it's fine. It's it's a fine scotch. I I'd drink it again if it was given to me. But you know, yeah. there are better scotches out there. Yeah, if so, I was if I was at a party and it was the scotch, I'd drink it. But if I was going to spend money, I would. Probably yeah. spend the same money on something else. Yeah. So, three stars. Solid yeah. three. Yeah. Uh, book. Jack the Fatalist. What do you think, Ethan? Buy, borrow, forget about it. I mean, I am not an unprejudiced witness, but I have read this book twice and want to read it at least twice more. Mm. So I would say buy it. Um, I think it'll be one of those ones that has something new for you every time you come back to it. Mm. Also, probably not difficult to find for... A couple dollars to a few dollars. Mm. So, um, if nothing else like that, I would say buy it. I think it's worth reading at least a couple times. Yeah, um, I am also going to say buy it. Uh, it's a good book. And like you say, finding it cheap, I found it in a thrift store. Yeah. Um, or, uh, no, a used bookstore is where I found it. And it was sure. it was really cheap. Um, and a good quality copy, too. But it does, like, it's the sort of book, again, that I want to read again and and just tease out more of it. it yeah. It's just fun to even page through yeah. over and over again and just pick out random little snippets. It, I think it's a quotable book. Yeah. I think it, it's it's one that I would love to just pull quotes from this and insert them in, in conversation. Like, it's the sort of thing where I want, like, a week by week to just turn to a random <laughs> page, find a couple random quotes... And memorize them and look for situations when I can use them in conversation. I think, I think it, especially once you've read it one time, um, I think it's one you could read in almost any mm. order, which I say is a good thing. Yeah. I don't know if that sounds like a good thing to most people, but in this case, it, it is. Right, like because very... again, it doesn't really have a plot. Yeah. Yeah. We're, you know, we're sometimes careful, like, I wouldn't have wanted to spoil Seven and a Half Deaths for anyone who wanted to read it first, but this one, we could have said all of the things that we already said before you read it, and it, it wouldn't, have wouldn't have spoiled anything nope. that you wouldn't have gotten. Right, because the plot isn't what it's about, because there right. is no plot. Right. Um, yeah. Which, I, I didn't even talk about road novels. And the mm. fact that this is the ultimate road novel in the sense <laughs> that the journey doesn't have a beginning or an ending. It's true. It's pure road. Yeah, it is. It is all road. I guess that's all I really need to say anyway. Mm. Well done. Thank you. Uh, pairing. I would say in the sense of like a gourd to consult along the way as we read this book, this was a fine drink to do it with. 
almost anything drinkable would have done, but <laughs> it was, you know, it worked quite well. Yeah, well, thanks for stealing my thunder on that one. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say, yeah, if if it if it ha- if it didn't have to be scotch, a good wine would be perfect. Yeah, for this a port or something. I mean, even um, a like a cognac. Yeah, had crossed my mind as something. Sure, sure. Something to. But you know, it, this this scotch does have a, a sweetness. It does have a, um, a you know mildness in general that I think goes pretty well with the book. It's it's uncomplicated. The book itself kind of keeps the t- same tone throughout the whole yeah. thing. So in that sense, it kind of pairs pretty well. You're not gonna. And just be like, distracted. Just like I mentioned at the end of, of Seven and a Half Deaths, it's sort of something you'd drink if you were, like, the lower class, if you just needed something that was good enough and consistent. Yeah. Um, and I think that works for, for this sort of yeah. road imagery as well. Yeah. All right. Cool. Very good. Those are our ratings. Uh, so next time, oh my gosh! Uh, next time, this is this is bringing us to the end of what we're calling season three of Michael and Ethan in the Room with Scotch. Uh, so season four is going to begin with another another Mongo book, which is what we're um, affectionately calling the books like. Um, Don Quixote. Like if you dropped them on your foot, you'd probably have to go to the ER. Yeah, precisely. Um, so our next Mongo book, which is going to be our next set of not two, but four episodes, we're going to talk about uh, this book, is Of Human Bondage by Somerset Maugham. Um, so Of Human Bondage, we'll be reading that and discussing it over four hours to initiate season four of Michael and Ethan Room with Scotch. Uh, depending on how things go, there might be something else after this before we start our discussion of that, but... Um, just, you know, keep apprised, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and see the news there. And that's how you'll see these things. Otherwise, you know, if you're just listening, randomly listening and you don't care what comes next, just comes next, then great. Just, you know, keep hitting play on your podcast player. Um, that works. Keep, keep inserting the CDs as you run out of them. Not CDs, not CDs. Um, From your, from your sleeves. I'm relevant. Yeah, almost. (laughs) Snapchat. Um, so read along with, uh, Mom, with, uh, we're going to be, have to be careful talking about that author, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you're Mom. right. I mean, I've always said it Mom, so Mom. Mom. I don't know if that's correct Mom. at all, Mom. but I might stick with yeah, it just for that to. reason. Mom. Anyway, Of Human Bondage. Read along with that book. Give us your feedback. Uh, go to the contact section of tapsterradio.org and put Scotch Talk in the subject line to let us know what you think about the book. Also on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. Talk to us there. Or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. You can request to join, and we will let you in as long as you're not fatalist. Um, or Unless we're fated to. Unless we're fated to let you in. Unless it was we'll, written up yonder. We will let you join if it was written up above that we would let you join. Um, also, we'll do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we condone plagiarism because it's funny. Uh, go to the website, tapsterradio.org slash scotchcast. Fill out the form for homework submissions. We'll do our best. We'll make it fun. And we will laugh as you hand it in to your teacher and are promptly arrested for plagiarism. Yep. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So that's that. If you like this podcast, uh, check out our other shows on the Tapster Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United RPG Actual Play Podcast. Rate and review us and all the podcasts you like 
on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, other places wherever you get your podcasts uh, so that others can find our podcast and enjoy it as much as you do because we know, we know you enjoy this podcast. We know you love it. We know that we're your favorite and we're your best friends and, you know, just come over anytime and, you know, we'll hang out, we'll share beer, we'll play a game. Uh, and, uh, I value my alone time, so at least tweet, he's just saying that. At least tweet me first, and also sometimes if I'm in my house by myself, I'm in my underwear. So definitely just tweet me. Show up first for your own good. Yeah, also, how the do door you, unlocked? How do you know where right I, on in? Also, how do you know where I live? I told them. Ah, uh, yeah, that that tracks. Yep. Um, where can they find you, Ethan? I am on Twitter at Bjartlet. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, I write a web comic called Pin Porter Girl Detective. That's pinporterdetective.com or Google Pin Porter Girl Detective. Uh, it's a fairy tale film noir mashup web comic. And the art is quite good, which I don't do. Um, yeah, that's it for me, I think. Alright, I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L, also in the other Tapestry Radio shows, and the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook, so find me there and chat me up. Um, so, great. That's our episode, and until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if... We want to. I'm embracing our free will in this one, if we want to. So, suck it. (laughs) Wow.
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.